From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we'll have a conversation with University of New England Professor Ali Ahmida about his new book, Genocide in Libya, Shar, A Hidden Colonial History. Stay with us. Who ever heard of genocide in Libya in the 1920s? The Libyans certainly have. In his brand new book, Genocide in Libya, Shar, A Hidden Colonial History, University of New England professor Ali Ahmida meticulously documents the tragic story of a systematic genocide of the Libyan people by Italian colonial authorities a century ago, as well as the methodical cover-up that ensued. Despite a dearth of recorded material, most of which were classified or destroyed through painstaking interviews with genocide survivors and their descendants, Professor Ahmida manages to accomplish a seemingly impossible task by reconstructing, bit by bit, a shameful episode from the brief but devastating history of Italian colonialism in North Africa, thanks to the enduring memory and a steadfastness of the martyred people in Libya. Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Ahmida about his new book and the forgotten history of Libyan genocide. Your book, Genocide in Libya, has just come out. And to me, it's a trailblazing work and on a little publicized chapter of European colonialism, specifically the way Italy massacred hundreds of thousands of Libyans in the early 20th century. But before we go into the genocide per se, perhaps you could give our listeners the historical context in which this tragic episode of uh, Libyan history transpired and share with us a very brief history of the major events of that period, roughly from the 1911 invasion until 1943. The Libyan case is the least known for all kinds of reasons. We could share some thoughts with each other about why it's the case. But Italy invaded Libya, uh, which was at that time, it used to be called Tripoli. There was no Libya. Libya, as a name, was resurrected by Italian colonialism to revive their claims of Libya as a Roman province of the Roman Empire. The name for Libya under the Ottoman rule between the 16th century and early 20th century is Tripoli of the West. Exactly, because there are two Tripolis, one in North Africa, that's Libya, the capital of Libya. And there is another one in Lebanon, today's Lebanon, called Tarabul Sisham, the Levant, the Tripoli of the Arab East. So the Italians, really, when they looked around in the age of uh, imperialism and colonialism, the rich colonies were taken. Algeria, your native homeland, was invaded in 1830. Before that, Egypt and Tunisia, 1881-1882, Morocco in 1912, and the French took over Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. The British took the big prize took over the Egyptian case. And Libya, it's supposed to be really one of the poorest in the region because it doesn't have rivers, doesn't have lakes, have a sparse population. Oil was not discovered at that time. So the Italian who were longing for empire of their own, 
they first took a small colony in what's called today Eritrea, and then they began to make deals and treaties with the other powers, and they were giving a Tripoli. Of course, nobody consulted the local population, as you might say, uh, <laughs> but international law became a tool to uh, legitimize and give the right for imperial powers in the Congress of Berlin, and after that, to execute that colonial design to partition Africa, which is also known as the scramble for Africa in late 19th century and the beginning of 20th century. Then we could say that Tripoli was given by the fellow imperial powers to Italy, and Italy invaded Libya in October 1911. Now, what the Italian colonial state, and after that the fascists in 1922, who succeeded the so-called liberal monarchy in Italy, they assumed that they would be welcomed by the local population, and they accused the Ottoman Empire of really keeping the population poor, impoverished, a pre-modern, and all of these kind of claims, and they said that they're going to bring modernization and progress to the Libyan people, but also they argued we are really coming back because Italy has the right to colonize the whole Mediterranean. We are the heirs of Rome or the Roman Empire. To make a long story short, they invaded in 1911, but the local population, the Libyan people, fought heroic anti-colonial resistance based on voluntary armies and volunteers who were equipped, financed, and fed by the local population in a guerrilla warfare hit and run from 1911 until 1915. Then they managed to defeat the Italian armies. The Italian state made a truce in 1916 with the Libyan resistance. But when the Italian Mussolini movement took over the power in, in Rome, they decided that to abrogate all treaties and really crush the resistance because they really need to have total control of the colony Libya. At the same time, they really wanted to do something similar to Algeria. Libya was designed as a settler colony. There are millions of Italian peasants who were demanding land and demanding reforms within Italy. And the Italian government decided that instead of being humiliated by migration to other countries in Latin America and North America and other places, they want to have a colony of their own. So the dream of the fascists is to have a colony where they could settle between half a million to a million Italians in the colony of Libya. And they called Libya, as the French called Algeria, not as a colony, but part of France. So Libya was called the fourth shore. And they decided that they really want to crush that resistance and quite honestly, to empty the land, especially the fertile land in the north and in eastern uh, Libya, to have settlers and resolve what they designed fictitiously as demographic problem in Italy. The Italian generals and the Italian state were very clear. In order to have their settler colony, they need to really defeat this resistance. So from the records that I found from 1928-1929, we found letters by the generals, the colonial governors of Libya, Governor Badoglio, General Graziani, General Dubono, and they said, 
we want to crush this resistance by any means, at any price, even it meant the extermination of the whole native population. And here it's important to pause and raise a question. What was at work here is first the intentional plan to crush the population and empty the land. The second is really the genocidal intent to really destroy the population and subdue it peacefully if possible, and if not, then crush it. The resistance was brilliant, was stubborn, organized, and really managed to resist, especially in the East, until 1931. And the most legendary guerrilla leader is Omar al-Mukhtar, who was really one of the most brilliant guerrilla leaders uh, that led the resistance from the beginning until uh, his capture and also his hanging in front of people in 1931. There was a famous uh, Hollywood movie made about Yes, Omar there is Mukhtar. Lion of the Desert, Anthony Quinn played that role, and it's quite a vivid and important movie to watch. And I, I show it to my students in my Empire and Genocide class, and we talk about it quite a bit. It's a very, very interesting movie made by a Syrian-American filmmaker. The by late the name- Aqad, yes. He was yes. Uh, a professor at USC when I was at USC. I met oh, him. Yes. And it had to be an Arab (laughs) to make a movie like that. Nobody else was interested, obviously. Yes, he he was an interesting man, very gifted man. And he was a very smart film producer. He made all the successful Halloween genre movies. And out of that money and with the support of Libya and I think Kuwait a little bit, he managed to produce his dream film. Lion of the Desert, Omar al-Mukhtar. I think this is the larger context, is colonial fascist plan to settle people and crush native and indigenous resistance. So as you said, it started before the advent of fascism proper in 1922, in 1911, but it was taken to the next level by the fascists, by Mussolini. The fascists were really took that colonial racist ideology to its ultimate end, genocide. And I think what happened is when you look at the evidence, there is no hesitance. There is no wavering on the really very, very dehumanizing plan to take over the native land and literally empty it from the people and their herds and their population. Professor Hamida, before we get into the meat of the story, please help us understand this term genocide. Could you start by defining the term as internationally agreed upon in the United Nations? What does the term itself mean, genocide? Well, genocide is really a term that was coined by a very brilliant Polish scholar by the name of Raphael Lemkin. In 1948, he coined this term, which is made of masculine, the word that he coined together, and it became associated with what he said that are two conditions to it. The first one is the intentionality, not an accident of war, not something that unintended, no, the idea of really planning and declaring an intention to eliminate the other. And to do that, you have to dehumanize the other. And then after that, the destruction of the physical, economic, social, cultural, and ethnic patterns of life, he called. And that will be the second condition and replacing it with the the state 
or the aggressor modern way of destroying the people who are killed in mass. So this is how we inherited this term in the 20th century because of uh, Raphael Lemkin. Yeah, the reason I ask is that it's an understandably controversial notion. What is a genocide? What is not a genocide? In your book, you speak of concentration camps from 1929 yes. through 1934. And those yes. predate the Holocaust, but they did not predate the first genocide in Algeria or in Armenia. Of course, the very term of concentration camp itself just like the term genocide, is often a matter of dispute. In this country, people politely speak of detention camps to make a clear distinction with Nazi concentration camps of World War II. The French also in Algeria denied the existence of actual concentration camps. Tell us about the camps in Libya in the 1930s. What were those? Well, this is a very good question. Of course, these assumptions and, and debates and controversies you're talking about are related to what I call the politics of silence and the production of collective amnesia by people who don't want to confront the ghosts of history and take responsibility for it. So the Holocaust, one of the worst genocides in the 20th century, became really the focus but other Holocausts, other genocides in the 20th century, including the one I investigated after 80 years of being really ignored, is really important for two reasons. One, it is because it's really tried to tell us and investigate what happened exactly and why the story was really silenced and ignored. The second is, and I make it very clear, to rethink the theorizing, the focus on Europe and the focus on the Holocaust in isolation as a unique case. But let me now address your question. What happened in Libya in 1929, in the context of, of trying to really crush the resistance and the settlement plan, is the Italian fascist, this general, decided that the only way to do that is to really isolate the resistance. So what they did, they built a fence for 300 miles along the Egyptian borders to cut the supplies from Egypt, they also came with the second plan, draconian and genocidal plan, to move, deport, and uproot the total rural population of eastern Libya, called Barqa or Cyrenaica and Western Scholarship, on foot with their herds, which total 600,000 animals, and by sea to the desert of Sirte, 500 sometimes miles walk, and they deported 1929, between 110,000, some Libyan scholars think it's a little bit more. I think it's as much probably as 110,000 of people, elderly, children, men and women, and they were deported from their homeland in the green mountains of eastern Libya. These thousands of people were uh, moved to the desert of Sirt, and they were interned in 16 concentration camps along the coast. But the worst of those 16 concentration camps were in the desert of Sirt, and I focused on the six because most of the killing and deaths that happened in the camps between 1929 and 1930, until 1934 took place in the five camps that I specified in my book, Genocide in Libya, A Hidden Colonial history. And I gave the name Shar, which is the name that the local people refer to this really 
horrible period. Evil in Arabic. Evil so, in Arabic, yes. So, and I, mm-hmm. I wanted to have the title, actually, we died because of evil, as they told me, son. But my publisher said, Ali, you know, short, that's really an Arabic word nobody will understand. And reluctantly, I agreed, but I insisted in the subtitle to have the word used by the survivors and their descendants to really give it a weight, as we say, Shawa, or uh, say the Holocaust in came in terms of the uh, genocide in Europe uh, by the Nazi states. In Algeria, where I come from, the French conquest claimed about one-third of the population. This, according to French historians themselves, one million out of three. And this was the first genocide. A hundred yes. years later, yes. there'd be a second. But yes. one million out of three. Uh, yes. which is a, roughly the proportions of the Holocaust as well. But in Libya, the proportion, according to your research, was even slightly higher than that. Libya, or Tripoli, under Ottoman Empire, in the Ottoman sense, census that took place in 1908-1910, I believe, the population was between one million and one million and a half. And they couldn't reach all of the people who were nomadic or traveling in the interior. By 1943, the population were 800,000. And uh, I don't think that people stop making babies, but I think the horrific impact of Italian colonialism directly and indirectly, including the direct mass killing in the camps, is even worse than Algeria. And Algeria is really one of the worst horrible cases in addition to the Congo and in addition to Southwest Africa and Namibia, the Herero genocide. Uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. So, uh, and of course, in the East, we have the Armenian genocide. So what I try to do is not to focus on just one, the cases together, but I investigate the forgotten Libyan horrible case, which I think you will write the money. The Libyan case is more violent and more brutal than even the Algerian case, which is a horrible case by all means. And we think, I think between 40% to 50% of the Libyan people perished directly or indirectly between 1911 and 1943. And yet, as you point out, it's largely forgotten other than by the Libyans themselves and perhaps some of the sisters and brothers around Libya, nobody has heard of it. You document a cover-up by the Italian state and you, yes. speak, you speak of amnesia. How did, did such a horrible genocide go forgotten? This is really half of the book is about, the first half is about investigating what happened as a collective crime. Uh, what happened to the 60 or 70,000 people who perished inside the camps, how the survivors can tell us the story. But to give you an idea about how, why it took me almost 20 years to finish this book, I went naively as a graduate student, PhD students, in late 80s to Italy to do archival research. And I purposely decided to see if there is any files on the camps, because I know from my own family history, oral history, that's really a big thing. This is really so intensely entrenched and permeates the Libyan culture, especially the resistant region of Libya. So they told me after a week that I can't continue because... I'm a for Libyan origins, and Libya government doesn't really allow Italian uh, scholars to do research on the Libyan archives, which is a turn turned to be really not true. So they got rid of me after that. Then, Even if it were true, what a lame excuse for censoring yeah. research. <laughs> yes. Then I I tried to go back, and I couldn't find much. And then I decided to write to two progressive, courageous, elderly historian, Professor Angelo Dolbocca 
and George Rorschach, who really among the few voices that kept saying what happened in Libya is a genocide in 1929-1934. And these two are Italians? Yes, Italian progressive historians. And one uh, journalist by the name of Eric Salerno, who wrote a little book called Genocido in Libya, means genocide in Libya. And he told me when I asked him, how did you write about it? He told me, I heard Gaddafi saying, do you remember Al-Aguila camp? People remember the Lagela camp, and he kept shouting and telling people about it. And I had no idea what he's talking about. And the Agela camp is one of the worst concentration camps where a large number of people perished, thousands of them, as I discovered that later on. So anyway, Khalil, I decided to be fair-minded and say, I'm going to ask some Italian colleagues to tell me where to find the files. Professor Del Bocca said to me, Ali, don't waste your time here. I spent 40 years. The files on the concentration camps is being manipulated and taken away or destroyed. And he said, if I were you, you're a young scholar, why don't you go to Libya and to Eastern Libya and see if you could find the survivors and if they could really agree to talk to you. Then I tried to get the British archives on the subject for one reason. When the British defeated the German and Italian armies in Northern Africa in the Alamein battles and took over Libya, I thought they might have some files on the subject matter. I found some material, but then I ran into a film by the BBC produced by a very, very visionary filmmaker by the name of Ken Kirby called A Fascist Legacy. And I tried to find a copy of it. But despite the fact the BBC is a corporation paid by the taxpayers' money to provide non-profit information and knowledge, I couldn't find it. And in America, we have access to a lot of material. And then I discovered that the Italian government bought the BBC three hours long documentary and shelved it. And I tried to find the, the producer. And then he finally said, I have one copy VHS. I could mail it to you. I tried to find it and asked two of my students research uh, students to see if anybody would have it. We couldn't find it in America of all the wealthy libraries we have in the United States. And I became suspicious. I think there was something really, there's a cover up. American historian who was really provided the memo and the information behind this legacy and the atrocities in Yugoslavia and Libya and Ethiopia. He was not in, in, in America. He was not in, in, I couldn't find him. And finally, I get a note from the producer telling me that Michael Bolombo, a very, very honorable and ethically conscious American historian, by accident, he found some classified documents at the public record office in London, which is the place where British archives are located. And he found things that are pertaining to really, really slimy agreement about the allies and the British role in covering up for the Italian fascist atrocities. To make a long story short, I managed to find, uh, after two years, a copy of this film, which is also, by the way, available, but abridged in Italian in YouTube, but it's not the complete one. I found a copy of, of this BBC uh, documentary in Australia, and it was damning and it's incredible documentaries. I began to become more suspicious that this is really not a matter of accident or people don't know, they couldn't find the survivors, but even people who work in traditional historiography and, and historical research in the archives should have found about it. Then I became more alert to that and I 
looked at the American archives and I found some taken archives from Italy they brought to the United States that also shed some light on that, especially some American reports about what's going on in Libya. So I began to think about what should I do? Where I should I go from here? And I decided to go to Eastern Libya and see if I could find the survivors. I relied on my friends, my classmates in Cairo, my friends from my high school, summer camps, my friends in the Boy Scouts of Libya, and also some of my academic colleagues who really opened the gates for me because those survivors were suspicious of researchers who will come, make careers, and treat the survivors as a tool for their glory and their scholarship. And it took a while and they began, there is a chapter, whole chapter, I try to talk about my search for the survivors. And they interviewed me before I could interview them. They asked me, who are you? Who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? And where are you from? And where you grew up? What do you do in America? And they were terrific. And I decided to treat them with a lot of respect as equals and as people with agency, not people who are traditional or people who are really old or people who are not educated. And I began to really listen to their stories. I collected around 300 interviews, mine around 50 or 60. People began to give me interviews for deceased one. And some of the good ones, I interviewed them three times. And I began to collect the material and began to learn what they have to say and how they saying it. The cultural mechanism, they narrated their stories and what happened to their families. Most of them, Khalil, were either young boys and girls who were between the age of five to the age of 15. And they uh, vividly, some of them remember these stories, including this wonderful lady who uh, will talk to me one minute, she will sing, and another minute she will cry. And she tell me about what happened to her family and how many people died. And the memory was so fertile and so vivid. And as they were talking to me, the uh, children and the grandchildren were around them. And they remember these stories completely with alertness and they correct each other as if this is really becoming a layer of people's history hidden from the state. So as you document the difference between the pro-fascist state yes. and the fascist state and what followed in terms of memory, in terms of honoring the truth, is a distinction without the difference as far as the Libyans and the natives of North Africa are concerned, fascism at the hands of the Germans didn't seem necessarily distinct from what we had known at the hands of the non-fascists. Absolutely, Khalil. And I think here's the trouble. That's why the book covers not only what happened and try to find out and investigate rigorously what's really true and what's not true, how it happened, why people died, and eventually, of course, I had to go with my camera to the places themselves. And what horrified me there are the remains of it, especially the cemeteries and the graves. I found thousands and thousands of graves that really shocked me to the point that I began to see the face of genocide face to face after all of the interviews, all of the uh, reading all of the research that took years. Every summer, I will go to Eastern Libya and meet with numerous people in this town, in this neighborhood, in this city, in this region. I wanted not to hurry this project. At the end, I think what was so essential is to construct 
the living memory among the people and the archives and the oral history and the poems, I discovered that people in Eastern Libya, they expressed themselves through poems. So a lot of the records was memorized as poems written during the internment and the imprisonment, collective imprisonment in, in these concentration camps. On the other hand, I began to confront the idea of Eurocentrism, the focus on the Holocaust alone as a unique case, and the myth of Italian fascism as benign and moderate. Yes, that was my next question. You have yes. done an yes. excellent job in this book yes. of challenging the idea that somehow the Italians were softer than the Germans, that uh, what they did could not compare yes. uh, in any fashion to what followed within Europe. You, yes, exactly. Among exactly. other insights gleaned from your book, I learned, for example, that German fascists were actually inspired by the Italian genocide, and that among other dreadful innovations, the gas chambers were inaugurated by the Italians before the Germans ever made use of them. Well, that was a surprise for me as well. I have to confess to you and your listeners, I didn't know about that. What happened is, first of all, we need to understand why this idea of nasty German genocidal state and really Italians as really non-efficient, Mussolini as a, a clown or buffoon, Italians are really kind as cosmopolitan and really are not really as nasty. That's pervasive in our representation and culture until today. I published a book in, in 2005 by the title Forgotten Voices, and there's a chapter on the camps, and I tried to put what I researched and the results of my research up to 2005. And they invited me to give talks in the Ivy League and the prestigious universities. I developed something out of reaction to, to the audiences. The people were kind, were interested. They were really open to my new research. But when I asked at the beginning, I say, how many of you know about the Italian concentration camps in Libya? And they say to me, Professor Ahmeda, were there uh, concentration camps? And then I realized that I have to explain why this horrible, brutal case may be the fourth or third most brutal case in Africa. The first, the Hurero genocide, the second, the Congo, the Algerian case, and the Libyan case. The case of the first genocide after World War I. And then I began to say, that has to be explained, Khalil. I have to make sense of this. Why this case disappeared and people had no clue about it? And worse, later on, people who referred to it even big, big scholars who write in North Africa and Libya, they say, and they were concentration camps, and they move on, as this is really the consequences of what happened in Libya and Italy as unified histories or cross-cultural history or North Africa and Europe. It didn't occur to them because they are really hostage to Eurocentrism, hostage to the area studies, hostage to expertise, North Africa, north of the Sahara, and south of the Sahara, and the idea, these assumptions and categories that are really are bankrupt and very dated right now, seems to me they need to be revisited, as I try to argue in the conclusion of the book. Not to mention self-serving. They're very yes, self-serving. exactly. Oh, of course. Because the when idea, the United States focuses on the Holocaust in Europe, it doesn't have to spend too much time on the, on the genocide that happened on this continent. 
Yes, for example, what happened to the Native people, the uh, Native American genocide, there is tremendous silence until today. There are studies here and there, but the most distinguished European theorists of genocide, Professor Hannah Arendt, is so silent about the Native American genocide. And this has really uh, shocked me because I'm very fond of her writing and her really penetrating analysis of the Holocaust. But I think she, she had a lapse, a blind spot, in when it comes to the American history that has to be narrated from the perspective of a larger perspective, as we are now debating the Afro-Americans, but also larger one, the Native Americans as well. Anyway, let me add one more point why our policymakers in the United States, FDR and others, really loved Italian fascism. This has to be explained. There are a number of factors. The Italian fascism was not a threat to American foreign policy. Uh, there was a communist party, the largest in Europe, in, in, Europe, in Italy, and the regime collapsed and there were no Nuremberg trials there. And at the same time, the allies needed the Italian fascists and not to upset the still very silent Italian public opinion that refused to confront the legacies and the atrocities of fascism outside Europe. There's a partisans and a critique of, of what happened inside Italy and Europe. But the minute you bring the atrocities outside, you bring Africa or the other parts of the globe, then it becomes really uncomfortable or people still cling to, I would say, racist notion about modernization, progress, modernity, and this really dehumanizing of the other. It's not coincidence that this very terrible idea of Italian fascism as benign and moderate is still persisting and add to that the idea of entertainment, movies, see uh, Tea with Mussolini, the idea of you know, a Roman vacation, the romance of Italy as really a place of history, of culture, of good food, of good architecture, of good tourism, and the ugly and the brutal and the genocidal history hasn't been confronted outside. And Italian public opinion, unfortunately, still has refused to admit that. And that's why the monuments of Italian fascism, the veneration of Mussolini, and the fact that new fascist parties are tolerated and became part of the establishment till today. So in 1992, the National Alliance won in the election. And in 2000, Gianfranco Fini became foreign minister in the government of Silvio Berlusconi. So they are really part of the established order. Conservative boys and the genocidal legacy and crimes that were committed earlier were completely silenced and ignored. And people talk about tribalism and Gaddafi and terrorism and so, and they forget there are people with history and people with agency, people with culture and people with the humanity. That's completely ignored. And my book tried to really confront these ghosts of the past in Libya and also in Europe and Italy. And I argued in the book that I'm not interested in another nationalistic history. I am trusted to confront the silences and allows ordinary people voice to speak for themselves. And I argue also that you cannot rewrite the history of Europe without the history of, of Africa. Can you write the history of Italy without understanding what happened in Libya and vice versa? Can you write the history of France without the history of Algeria and vice versa? So the idea of nationalistic, every state its own history, that's very, very troubling and really a, a lousy dated history. 
That is Professor Ali Ahmida speaking with Khalil Bendib about his new book, Genocide in Libya, Shar, A Hidden Colonial History. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. According to your book, Genocide in Libya, post-independence Libya as well chose to ignore yes. the history. Yes, that's, that's right. But also, you asked me about something, and I forgot to elaborate on it a little bit. When I was reading the archival material and the newspapers and the songs, I read really everything. I tried to look at the archival material, the oral history, field work, and also looked at the poetry and also the newspapers. I was reading this Italian-sponsored Arabic-language newspaper called Libya al-Musawwara, Illustrated Libya. And I was reading one of the volumes, and I discovered, I saw the picture of one of Hitler's generals, Goring, in Tripoli. And then I went to YouTube, and I found an old film of him and General Badelio, the architect of the genocide in 1929-1934, exploring and visiting the country and the colony. It got my curiosity. So I began to dig deeper. Does it have larger meaning? Were the German Nazi officials in contact with their allies in the colonies? Uh, is it a unique just one-time visit? And then, to my surprise, Khalil, I found incredible connection that quite often when you study Europe in its own or you study Africa in its own, you really cannot find it. As if you see a few trees and you forget to see the whole uh, forest. Then I began to, to dig deeper and I discovered more and more. And one young, young German historian teaching in Ireland wrote a, a couple of articles on this. So I contacted him and, and I asked him, is there more to it? I read Italian and I read French, but I don't really read German. And he sent me incredible visits and turned to be that that visit was one of many. Delegation after delegation of Nazi officials were really fascinated by the Italian fascist so-called success in Libya. And they thought that this genocidal success is really a place to look at for the Nazi state. And they had exhibits, books, visits, uh, seminars. And he sent me more evidence of this. And then I began to, to build an, another narrative that I think is very, very important. The Italian, not only Italian fascism was genocidal, I call it the Holocaust before the Holocaust, but also they really were the model with the uh, German uh, Nazi state. And therefore, when we look at not only the history of Italy, but the history of Europe and Germany, we have to look at the fact that they brought their roots and examples and models in Namibia, in Libya, and in the Congo, and the idea that the Holocaust brought only unique if you look at it in Europe, 
But if you look at its roots and modalities and influences, it brought the examples and experiments in Africa to Europe, brought colonialism to Europe. One is allowed to wonder whether the special importance accorded to the European Holocaust might not have to do with a simple notion that somehow the life sacrificed in Europe are intrinsically more tragic than non-European lives that have been sacrificed. Well, racism is part of it. And scholarship, and I hit hard on that, the idea of silence and the idea of not really taking certain atrocities and genocides in Africa as seriously as the one in Europe, really, I find it's very, very appalling. And that's why scholarship uh, also about ethics and about power and whether one treat others, human beings, non-European, non-whites, equally as equal human beings, or you want to treat them as lesser equals or subhumans, and therefore you get rid of them. It's not coincidence that the Nazi genocidal racist ideology first dehumanized Jews, gypsies, intellectuals, Catholics, and socialists, and, and other groups who were exterminated in Europe, as the Italian tried to deal with the so-called the Bedouin, who are primitive, warlike, children and need to be disciplined. And the camps were actually not really genocidal or brutal. It really disciplined them and brought them to modernity. So racism and dehumanization are really integral part of genocidal plans and genocidal execution. And it comes to how you really ethically and in terms of, of equality and humanity, do you treat the other as equal to you or you treat them as lesser hierarchical races and groups, and therefore you could justify violence and you could justify also genocide. There was a, another nice euphemism for this sort of uh, dynamic. They called it pacification, peace. Yes. Who, who could be against peace? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, so. exactly. That's the point, Khalid. Language is, is really part of the conflict. Yeah. The hegemony and racist language try to use fancy words, pacification, progress, modernization. Civilization. Uh, Civilization. That's why it's important to give agency and see how people who went through that, how they really view this, how they really tell us about it. And my book is really makes very clear. It's based on the views and the histories and perspectives of the survivors. And I didn't want to write another elegant uh, pontificating academic work. It has also an ethical stand, and my bias is toward the survivors who went through these horrible experiences and witnessed mass death in the camps. I asked them, how come many, many of your family members died in the camps? Now, they didn't gas them. Apparently, what they did, as brutal, they starved them. So they didn't feed them. They gave them a little bit of a very, very terrible old barley, uh, which is a part of the diet. And when they got sick, they didn't treat them. So the mass number of the 60 to 70,000 people who perished in the camps, especially the children, the elderly, the sick ones, died because of starvation and diseases. And also a third uh, factor that really came out of my research and investigation, these are semi-nomadic people. They could feed themselves, they work hard, they have their animals, their herds, their uh, farms. And so the 600,000 animals, uh, camels, sheep, horses, goats, also either uh, starved as well because they didn't feed them or confiscated to take into Italy 
or they use for other conquests inside the colony Libya. So not only the people themselves died in mass, but also their herds, their animals, which are so important to their survivors and culturally were treated the camels treated like a human being for many nomads. They also were devastated to the point that the colonial state, after the genocide and the crushing of the resistance and the release of the remaining survivors, had to bring some animals from Western Libya and Tunisia because they devastated the economy. And the kids, the orphans who lost their moms and dads and king groups, they were taken to schools where they socialized to and educated to become good fascist soldiers and many of them were sent to fight colonial wars in Ethiopia and the invasion that took place by Mussolini's army in 1935. So your book, in other words, is part of the answer to the question that many people are asking today, and that is, why is Black Lives Matter so resonant on the other side of the Atlantic? Why are so many people able to deeply identify with what's happened here to African-Americans and to Native Americans, because you show that Eurocentric explanation of the black and white contrast that is supposed to be there between fascism, a la Hitler, and just more benign colonialism, supposedly, a la you know, France or even here in this country. And yes. It's something that the, the people on the receiving end of both phenomena, colonialism and fascism, don't really see a, a major stark contrast between the two. Yes, it comes, it's really, there is a gradation of that way of thinking. Either you'll find argument, very shy, but really persistent argument, because either lack of knowledge or accepting the superiority of Eurocentrism and Westrocentrism, that colonialism was really modernizing after all. And I sometimes find it in some new books, some even PC dissertations. And I get really so upset about this because this is really after spending 20 years studying genocide studies in Europe and in Africa and trying to really study both as interconnected and really refusing to focus on the nation state as a way of thinking about history today. I find that still persisting with us. And that's part of the problem. It's never too late to confront the ghosts of history. The issue here is not about settling scores. Unless you confront history, you cannot heal and you cannot build bridges. And imagine what kind of society will be built in Italy when it confronts the public opinion and the establishment can confront that. Imagine what we might find when we confront what happened in Algeria. Imagine what kind of society in America, a wonderful maybe a future society where we make peace and confront the the atrocities and the legacies of racism, slavery, and Native American genocide. And what kind of society that's interconnected, that's multi-ethnic, that can really overcome the legacies of genocide and colonization and settler colonialism and embrace the potential for more egalitarian, more interesting society than the idea of purity. I am not interested in nationalistic backlash. I am not interested in uniqueness. I am not interested in purity. I think purity is really a, a false and dangerous idea. Yeah. I'm interested at looking at the cross-cultural way of looking critically at knowledge and power, and also equally important in looking for future leaders and future education that allows us to build bridges. But first we have to confront the ghosts of the past and, and confront the crimes of the past 
and that will help us build bridges and allow others to talk to us and tell us about what they went through, especially uh, the victims of, of violence and genocide. To come back to the question I started asking you, and that is why even Libyans, even the Libyan state post-independence chose to ignore this important history. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, this is an excellent question. The Libyan state, the monarchy in 1951, which was really a major achievement for the Libyan people, but also was full of contradiction. It tries to rely on British and American support. And the monarchy was a modernizing, constitutional, very prosperous state, especially in the 1960s after the discovery of oil. So Libya was a good story, but also the founding fathers of Libya, the King Idris and the elite, uh, the monarchy elite, made a choice. And I think I can understand their logic, but also I could see that the price of that uh, choice, they decided not to confront or open the wounds of uh, the colonial period, the violent Italian colonial period, not only because what Italy did in Libya, but also there are people who collaborated, people who are resisted, people who were pushed into exile. It's really an open, a lot of wounds. So they decided to come with an interesting solution or choice, which is not to talk about it. Now, you could ignore history, but history will come to hunt you in episodes here and there, like we are confronting racism in American society today. We thought that we, we can ignore it and we could turn... Martin Luther King into um, Santa Claus, but <laughs> history will come to us. So this is, there is this, Gaddafi came to power with the younger, poor background officers with him in 1969, and he came with vengeance because he, and I always claim that, that the Gaddafi with all his eccentric uh, ideas, he relied on breaking the silence about the brutality of the colonial period. And one of the things that he always cries to Libya, nobody gives a damn about you. Nobody gives a damn about the concentration camps. Remember the Aguila concentration camps. Remember the thousand who died. And he exploited that for his own legitimacy and his own dictatorship. And I think at the beginning, people began to listen. They say he's right. But then when, when he began to really stay in power and really punish or discipline anybody who opposed him, then it became used for state purposes, not for really a societal way of really dealing with the legitimate concerns of the Libyan people vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Italian fascism and Italian colonialism. So it, people became alienated from him, uh, but he did one good thing, thanks to some really visionary scholar, Libyan scholar, a uh, Libyan scholar by the name of Muhammad al-Jarrari in Tripoli in 1977, came with the idea of collecting the oral history and have a center called the Center of Libyan Studies. And he has a PhD from University of Wisconsin in Madison, and his professor, his mentor, is the most respected scholar on oral history. We regard him as the father of the oral history methodology in Africa. So he brought Professor Jan Fancina to Tripoli and Dr. Jarrari was shrewd and very skillful, smart man. He gave Gaddafi the rituals that he, the state wants for declaring that they are the heirs of the anti-colonial resistance and all of that kind of thing, but also built a first-rate world-class center where Dr. Vancina, Professor Vancina, helped educate 20 or 40, I believe, 
uh, young scholars how to conduct oral history. And Libya between 1977, I believe, until 1990, they collected thousands of oral interviews among the survivors of the colonial period, including from the camps. So uh, I think that center is one of the best legacies. When I try to find anybody has done work on the camps, I found one historian who wrote a master thesis on this, and he was very gracious and gave me every interview he had. And then the center allowed me to have access to around 200 interviews that they collected. But also I began to see that I want to ask my own questions. So I went back and I interviewed more. So in short, the Gaddafi government, the Jamahiriya, really used through its populist ideology, anti-colonial ideology, the colonial history, including the history of the concentration camps for its own uh, political uh, entrenchment and legitimacy. The, uh, unfortunately, even while Libyans know about the camps, especially the poems and the family's history, but what happened exactly, how it happened, what really the details of that history, who is who and who died, who survived, who collaborated, who was not, and what happened in Italy too, that took me, I would say, uh, from 2000 until today, 15 years, 10 years of research and five years of reading and deciphering and contrasting. And then only then I began to connect the dots and have the whole picture come alive. Unfortunately, both the monarchy and the Gaddafi governments, they manipulated the issue. But the remarkable thing for me is the Libyan people kept that memory alive, especially the one who are in Eastern and Central Libya. They kept that oral history, that really history, societal history alive. And even though I'm calling for more recognition and maybe a museum, I'm a little bit hesitant because I know when states build museums, they build them in their own image and their own uh, symbolism. And I like the fact that the Libyan people and private archives in oral traditions, in creative culture, they really kept that history alive despite the modern state and despite the fact that Italy and modern uh, Western scholarship were completely in the dark about what happened in Eastern Libya between 1929 and 1934. To conclude, I would like to maybe hear a little bit about your own family's history, which is in this book. And as a representative sample of what happened to the Libyan people, you say that you yourself are the grandchild of some of the resistors. The reason I became interested even in this subject, and that became my specialty, colonial and and anti-colonial resistance in the last 30 years, is because I came from a family that was impacted by colonialism directly. Both my grandparents were freedom fighters. They spent their teen years fighting in the resistance. And I grew up with my mother and grandmother the stories I listened to were stories about the battles, the resistance, the displacements, the starvation, the deportation, the exile. My mother was born in exile with her uh, father. Which part of Libya was this? I was born in central Libya in a, in a, uh, a town called Waddan, which is an old, old town. Grew up in Sabha, which is the capital of the region of Fezzan, the southern region of yes. Libya, with only one high school there. And my grandfather, Ali, after they were defeated in 1930, he escaped into uh, northern Chad and became a, a refugee in Fayal Arjo 
in northern Chad. My mother was born there, so was my aunt and my uncle. My grandmother, Aisha, died, unfortunately, there. And my mother, who came young to Libya around by the, you know, the age of 14, she had me when she was very young. She told me the stories of, of living in exile and what happened to her, to her. And my grandfather, I would say always, maybe he told me his life story 20 or uh, 25 times. And he wanted to make sure that as a youngster, that I listened to what he had to say. My other grandfather did not go into exile, but he was protected by two Libyan groups, the Magarba people in eastern Libya and a family of Warfella also. And his family thought that he died. Only 10 years after independence, he uh, reappeared and he was a Quranic teacher. And they discovered that he's still alive. I came from a culture like the survivors of the concentration camps, the same culture. People still remember the heroism and the struggle to resist colonialism and fascism. But at the same time, they tell you about the trauma, the displacement, the hunger, the death, and all of these kind of things. Ali Ahmida is a professor and founding chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of New England. His scholarship focuses on power, agency, and anti-colonial resistance in North Africa, especially modern Libya. He is the author of several books, including his latest, Genocide in Libya, Shar, A Hidden Colonial History. He spoke with Khalil Bendi. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.